Hello and welcome to Punch a Hole in the Wind, a look at some of the great thoroughbred racehorses who have graced our racetracks all around the world over the last century or so. I'm Ollie Hine and it's great of you to join me on this exciting trip down memory lane. My aim is to both remind you of some of your heroes from years gone by, but also to introduce you to some others whom you may not be so familiar with. Named after a ballerina, Nijinsky had both the elegance and good looks worthy of his name. He was also one of the most brilliant horses ever trained in Ireland. Shortly before he died in 1950, fated ballet dancer Václav Nijinsky stated unequivocally that he would one day be reincarnated as a horse. Absurd, yes, and yet. Less than two decades later, a horse carrying his very name and his indefinable elegance would launch himself into equine immortality. Horses don't have to be supermodels in order to be great, but when, like Nijinsky, they are almost ridiculously handsome, it certainly adds something to their luster. The fact remains that, gorgeous or not, Nijinsky staked a realistic claim in 1970 to be the greatest horse trained in Ireland in the 20th century. Bred in Canada, Nijinsky was the first European-trained horse to really put the all-conquering Northern Dancer line on the map. Even though his powerful 16.3-hand frame was more reminiscent of his dam, Flaming Page, than of his undersized sire. But it was only the eagle eye of master Irish trainer Vincent O'Brien that brought him to Ireland in the first place. O'Brien had been asked by mega-wealthy mining magnate and breeder Charles Engelhard to hot-foot it to Toronto as there was a yearling by Rebo on which he wanted a second expert opinion. O'Brien was underwhelmed by what he saw, but another there caught his eye, and he suggested that his benefactor bid for that one instead. Engelhardt trusted the guru's sixth sense and paid a Canadian record $84,000 to secure him at the sale. He was a striking rich bay with a white forehead star and a fiercely intelligent eye. Soon to be named Nijinsky, he would also develop a poetic stride fitting of his namesake. O'Brien initially raced him only at the Curragh, just outside Dublin, as a two-year-old, including the Railway and Beresford stakes. From the outset, he usually started odds-on, as word had got out of his abilities. Ridden in all his Irish races by Liam Ward, he duly obliged in each, before O'Brien sent him to take on England's best in the Group 1 Seven Furlong Dewhurst stakes in Newmarket. Ridden in his races in England by Lester Piggott, he was held up before weaving through the field to win comfortably. He was good, and he promised more. At three, after an easy warm-up in the Gladness Stakes at the Curragh, he took on the best of his peers in Newmarket's 2,000 guineas, delivering the prize with a mixture of grace and power, although he appeared also to be crying out for further. All eyes then turned to the Epsom Derby. For once, he started odds against, mostly due to the presence of the gangly but hugely talented French cold Gier, a son of the legendary seabird. Etienne Pouli, respected trainer of both father and son, had chosen to delay his retirement specifically to train him. Halfway down the cambered Epsom Strait, Gier was moving ominously well in the lead, and about to go clear, which was when Piggott lifted his whip and got an immediate response from Nijinsky who sped past to win by two and a half lengths in a quick time. His penultimate furlong was timed at 10.6 seconds. Only Dancing Brave would ever cover a derby furlong quicker. He repeated the trick three weeks later in the Irish derby, 
with Liam Ward back on board, beating Meadowville effortlessly by three lengths. It was then time to take on the older horses at the King George and Queen Elizabeth stakes in July at Ascot. The international field was small but very select, including the Group 1 winners of the 1969 Epsom Derby, Blakeney, the Washington DC International, Carabas, the Prix de Diane, Crepolana, and the Coronation Cup, Caliban. You will be very hard pushed to find a Group 1 race being won with a jockey as immobile as Piggott was that day, toying with Blakeney in second. It was sublime, and reinforced Piggott's view, expressed later, that in the summer of 1970, Nijinsky was utterly unbeatable. Much is made of jockeys' relationships with certain horses. Some seem to have an understanding that borders on the telepathic. It is testament to their intelligence, as well as the expertise of the jockeyship. But if you thought that Piggott and Nijinsky possessed that mutual language, you would be mistaken. Piggott was certainly in awe of his mount, but he nevertheless found Nijinsky highly mysterious. He once said, He wouldn't talk to me. He never talked to me. Nijinsky had that far-off look in his eye from the first time I saw him. It was like he was looking right through you. Even so, all was looking so rosy. But then illness struck, in the form of ringworm, with weeks of training lost. Engelhardt was keen for Nijinsky to take in the 14 furlong St. Ledger and become the first winner of the English Triple Crown since Baram in 1935. It was touch and go but he just recovered in time. Tenderly ridden by Piggott, Nijinsky did what he had to do and beat Meadowville again by just a length. The Triple Crown was won and he was further hailed as a great. It was clear though that it was only his outrageous class that got him there and that he was likely still suffering. It had taken far more out of him than was initially apparent. The traditional October championship target of the Prix de l'Arc de Triomphe at Longchamp came next. It was a strong but beatable field. In the straight, Nijinsky was balked twice when making his move on the outside, although it did not unduly affect him. He passed Miss Dan, and then French champion jockey Yves Saint-Martin on Prix du Jockey Club winner Sassafras, but then suddenly could find no more. And Sassafras, running the race of his life, found extra. They flashed past the post together, with many in the crowd unsure who had won. It was only as the horses returned to the paddock that it became clear. Piggott, never the world's champion smiler, was even more hangdog than usual, whilst his great rival Saint-Martin, with whom he shared enormous mutual respect, beamed joyously. Nijinsky had lost for the first time. It is hard to overstate the shock of race doers that day. It simply wasn't in the script, and the finger-pointing started almost immediately. The inquest initially blamed Piggott for leaving his horse too much to do, although a study of the race shows that he rode the fiery colt exactly the same as he always had. Saint-Martin had just kept with the pace better. It was likely that he was still feeling the effects of the ringworm, as well as running in the St. Ledger. The horse had every right to feel tired after a long season. Respected racing writer Arthur Fitzgerald suggested an altogether different reason. Perhaps Nijinsky wasn't a true mile-and-a-half horse in the first place, with the stiff Longchamp test exposing the limits of his stamina. Nijinsky, he argued, had essentially burgled the other 12 furlong races because they were on more forgiving tracks, where he could simply recharge during the downhill sections. Whichever the reason, amends were sought a mere fortnight later over the straight 10 furlongs of Newmarket's champion stakes, but the electric acceleration was again missing 
with Nijinsky beaten two lengths by the patently inferior Lorenzasio. Nijinsky had had enough. His owner, Charles Engelhardt, would pass away just five months later. At Stand in America, Nijinsky cemented his sire's line and produced 155 stakes winners, along the way becoming the only horse to sire the same season's Kentucky Derby and Epsom Derby winners. Piggott, winner of 30 English classics, would still claim many years later that Nijinsky was one of the two most brilliant horses he had ever ridden. The identity of the second would change with the seasons. Are there lessons to be learned from Nijinsky's brilliant career? Perhaps. We see the inferior horse that Nijinsky became after his tiring ledger win. And, much as the more traditionally-minded Brits would hate to admit it, the race has undoubtedly lost some of its glamour since as a direct consequence. It is now very much the exception rather than the rule that Epsom Derby winners even consider taking in this hard, long race when so many end-of-season championship races, the ARC, the Breeders' Cup and more, offer so much more in terms of honours, stud value as well as considerable immediate riches. It is telling that both Ireland and France have opened up their equivalents to older horses, recognising that times, and indeed the very makeup of the thoroughbred, have changed. Nijinsky could therefore not just be the greatest English Triple Crown winner, but also its last. Either way, this capricious, haughty, whimsical soul of a horse entranced the racing scene in a way that a dancer of the same name had, a few decades before, to similarly enraptured crowds. Perhaps Václav Nijinsky had had the last laugh after all. To find out more about Nijinsky and other greats from the past, check out my book, Punch a Hole in the Wind, out now and available online and in bookshops. Next time, we'll go to a different part of the world and share the exploits of another great horse from another era who could punch a hole in the wind. But until then, this is Ollie Hine signing off and saying thank you for listening.